Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Uh, my name is Arnaldo. If we haven't met, I uh, would love to meet you afterwards. Uh, but one of the things that we do here every single week at Anchor Southwest is that we read scripture uh, because we want to submit ourselves to God's holy word rather than our uh, bright ideas, which aren't so bright after all. Uh, so one of the things we do is we read, and I'm going to ask everyone if you're able to, to please stand for the reading of scripture. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians. The words will be on the screen, uh, but there are some Bibles lying around. If you don't own a Bible, uh, or if you do, uh, bring it to church. Uh, th- this, is, this is the place to bring it, right? And so, uh, but there are Bibles there in the back if you don't own one uh, to take with you. So I'm going to be reading from uh, the epistle of 1 Corinthians um, from chapter 7, um, just a few verses. I'm, I'll be jumping around. So from verse 7, it says this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Down to verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him, uh, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband, I know. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all can have a seat. So we're jumping back uh, into our short series uh, in, uh, uh, on relationships. Um, and uh, part, I'm just going to apologize. I'm going to state the fact 
I don't have my glasses, and so I'm, I'm straining. It's my first day with contacts, and so I'm, I'm, I'll be here uh, a lot of the time to see my notes. Uh, so I'm just going gonna, gonna to put that out there. But a couple weeks ago, James uh, opened up the series for us very helpfully and laid out uh, what it means if we want to have or we want to be and become good friends. We were reminded that to be a good friend, we need a few things. We need uh, to be candid with one another. We, we need to be constant to one another. Uh, we, we need to give good counsel to one another, and, and we need to do that in the right way. We need to have good tact. And today, we're going to dive into the reality of singleness, and next week, we're going to be looking at marriage. But I want to say this, that if you're single here today, that this message is for you. And if you're married here today, this message is for you, regardless of where you may find yourself, whether you're happily married or happily single or unhappily married or unhappily single, wherever you find yourself, whether we have been divorced or widowed, we find ourselves uh, unexpectedly single again, my prayer is that we will be able to lift up the goodness and the opportunities that both singleness and marriage offer us, as well as the dangers of both singleness and marriage. My prayer is that through these next two weeks, we'll be able to do our part in dismantling the idol of marriage uh, that the church so often carries and lift up the goodness and the glory of singleness as well as elevate marriage to the place uh, that it belongs whilst understanding that singleness and romance and dating can themselves become deformative forces in our lives. So we'll need to do a bit of deprogramming, a bit of deconstructing before we reconstruct both singleness and marriage, if we're going to steward both our singleness and our marriage to the glory of God and for the sake of the world. But as usual, we need help. You need help to listen. I need help to speak. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, uh, Lord, that the truest thing in the universe, the deepest thing in the universe is that you are good. And so help us, Lord, to, uh, uh, to see the world through that lens. Help us to understand that you are for us and not against us. Help us to understand, Lord, that you have invited us into this space. We do not invite you into this space. I pray that you would help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people, and that you would help me to remember the things that will be. And more than anything, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, and the church said, there are some stories that can only be understood from the vantage point of the end, like the critically acclaimed sixth sense. I'm showing my age. We're not ageist here. The sixth sense came out in 1999. Like, that's wild. Some of y'all weren't even born back then. That is the 20th century, right? Like, that's, that's, that's what, 24 years ago. And I think I rented this one on VHS, right? Do y'all know what a VHS is? Some of y'all do. From, from Blockbuster, right? And Blockbuster, it was a magical place. You would walk in to this popcorn smelling place and you'd have to browse movies, not with your thumb, but with your legs. You'd walk around a place. It's like walking into the search bar of Netflix, right? And you're browsing movies and you'd have to pick out physically this box. You'd have to take it to the front and talk to someone, unfortunately. And you'd have to say, hey, I want to pay for this. I want to rent it. You'd have it for two or three days. And if you returned it without rewinding the tape, you'd be charged an extra two or three bucks, right? It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Anyway, where, where was I? The sixth sense. 
So The Sixth Sense, right? It, it, it's a movie about how this little boy, uh, he freaks out his moms because he, uh, he can see dead people. And he, he tells her, I see, I see dead people. And what you don't realize is that he, he, because of this, he goes to, to see a therapist played by Bruce Willis. And what you, what you don't understand until the very end is that Bruce Willis was dead all along. Now, if I'm spoiling that for you, I'm sorry. You're 24 years late to the party. Uh, but I, I, I pray, you know, I pray, I hope that you would go and see the movie. It's not on Netflix, I looked, because I wanted to catch up on it. Uh, but you realize at the end that Bruce Willis was dead all along. And it begins to make sense of the movie. There's some things and some stories and some movies that you can really only understand from the end. And you have to kind of read that back into the story. The Sixth Sense was, I can't say Sixth Sense, was nominated for six Oscars, right? How serendipitous. Uh, you should see it. And, and again, I, 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 you'd wish that if you go and see it, you'd wish that you didn't know the fact that Bruce Willis was dead all along. Right? You can only understand the movie from the end. Now, I don't want to be overly dramatic here, but if we fail to see uh, and understand and live in light of the end of the world, we will either be destroyed by our singleness or we will seek to destroy it. If we don't understand our singleness, the, the, the state of singleness from the end, because of what happens at the end of the world, we will either be destroyed by it or, let me, or be destroyed by it or destroy it. Let me say it another way. Unless we see and experience singleness in light of the kingdom of God, we will fail to steward it well and to live out our discipleship in one of the most important areas of our lives, our relationships. The end changes everything. The end makes sense of our experiences now. And more, more than makes sense of it, the end, what we think about the end, actually shapes our behavior in the present. I imagine this. Imagine there's a job that you come across, this job ad, and you're desperate, so you send, you're sending your CV to every possible place you can. And you go, you get this interview, and this is the job. The job is that you have to rock up and twist bottle caps on bottles for eight hours. That's your job. That's all you do. For eight hours, you get a half-hour break, and that's all you do. And to boot, the conditions are a little poor, right? Terrible ventilation, only a 30-minute break. You can't chuck any sickies. You don't get any paid vacations, and you can't listen to any podcasts while you work, right? Which makes it all, like, I, I don't know if I can do a job that I can't listen to podcasts while I work. You're just grinding. And at the end of the grind, at the end of the whole year, this is the catch, is that you get paid at the end of the year. Your, your, the, the, the deposit will come down only on December 31, and you're going to get $30,000. That's what you're going to get. Eight hours a day, five days a week, 52 weeks in the year, no sickies, no days off, and what you get at the end of the year is $30,000. How excited would you be by the, like the third week of January to go to work, right? Oh, you, you just got to go in and just this menial task. Imagine what August will feel like. Right? Ugh. To think that on December 31, I'm going to get 30 grand. Now listen, 30 grand is not an amount to balk at, right? But in Sydney, uh, uh, to receive that for the full year of work, it's not going to get you very far. Now imagine that you take up this contract, same condition, same place, same tasks, same breaks, etc., etc., but at, on December 31, you get 30 million. How would that change the way you approach work? How, how, how would August feel then, right? August will be much sweeter than January at that point. 
Every passing day would get sweeter and sweeter. I mean, you'd be skipping to work every day. This would be you going to work every single day. There would not be bottles that have been capped as vigorously or as positively or as strenuously as those bottles that you will twist caps on that year because you know, you know what's coming at the end. Knowing that you're going to receive 30 million at the end of this one year contract changes the way that you behave, the way you carry yourself. Now, I'm not saying you're not going to have bad days or off days, but you get the point. The point being that the way we experience the now is wholly contingent on what we believe about the then. How we experience now is wholly contingent about what we believe about the then, our future. And this doesn't just apply to work and money, but to every single part of our lives, regardless of whether we realize it or not. And much of the problem is that when we think about singleness, we don't approach it with the end in mind. But for Paul, he wanted to change the frame of reference, the way in which the Corinthian Christians saw the world, because they were asking similar questions, like, who can I sleep with? Who should I get married? What if we're engaged? Is that like being married in our hearts? But Paul did not want the Corinthian Christians to answer these questions from uh, the viewpoint of the prevailing Roman culture. He wanted the return of Jesus. He wanted the end of the world to be the reference point for how people decided to live their lives. Listen to what he says in verse 29. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away." Now, what Paul cannot be saying, let's just get this straight, he's not saying that if you're married, Ignore your wife or ignore your husband, right? He's not saying not to go to work. He's not saying uh, that that we need to pretend to, to sort of isolate ourselves from the world. He's not calling for a stoicism or a a Buddhist-like detachment from the world. What Paul is calling us to and the Corinthians to is we must understand our relationships to people, to places, to things in such a way that they do not become the ultimate reference point in our lives. That's what he's saying. That we we relate to people, places, things in such a way that they do not become the ultimate reference point of our lives. And why? Why? Because the present world is passing away. You don't put too much stock in things that are passing away. And this is so important for us to understand the way that Paul thinks. When we understand how he thinks about time, the New Testament will open up for us. And so we're going to go to class right now. And this is how Paul thinks about time. He, he, he has this idea of this present evil age, right? And it's this age that is filled with chaos and death and disorder and disease, right? The, the, when, so when in the New Testament you read uh, this present evil age, this is what he's talking about. And then everyone believed, just about every Jewish thinker, every rabbi believed and taught that the world was plunged into darkness because of the sin of Adam and Eve, our first parents. But they also believed in this age to come, right? 
This age to come that was marked by life and light and order and justice would rule. And, and the belief was that the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of Israel would come and get rid of the present evil age and usher in this age to come. And the thought was that this would happen in a linear fashion. That, that they, these two uh, are separate entities. They, uh, like we think about B.C. and A.D., right? They're linear. One happens and ends, and then the other one begins. The problem is this. Jesus comes along, and he does this. There's this overlap of time. And what theologians call the now and the not yet, where the kingdom has been inaugurated. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is true. We can experience now in this life both darkness and incredible light. We can experience both chaos and incredible beauty. How is it so? Because we live in this tension. We live in this time where the now, Jesus has come, but we're still waiting. And so we live with this Tension, the kingdom has come, but has not fully arrived. And this is what Paul is saying, that the age of death is aging out. It's passing away. It's fading away. This age of decay and disorder and chaos is fading away. So stop looking to it as your reference point. Stop looking to things that are going to eventually pass away anyway. How do I say this? Imagine... This, this, is, this is what we do. Imagine that your life is a Broadway play. We have scripts, we have cues, we have lines to say. And those scripts and cues and lines, they make up the texture of your personality. That, that's who you are. Literally. If you're a Christian here today, when it comes to the issue of singleness and dating, what we find ourselves doing is we find ourselves reading someone else's lines. We find ourselves reading someone else's script, the script of the old age. What do I mean? I mean that more often than not, we receive our scripts, we receive our cues, we receive our lines about what singleness is and how we should navigate it, not from the age to come, but from the age that is passing away. And so, if we're going to learn to walk faithfully, in the singleness that God is calling us to, we need to be discipled far more by 1 Corinthians than by love actually. Our, our, our views of romance and love need to come from the Psalms and not the notebook. But that's just who we are. We're, we're so embedded that we fail to see the ways that we have all been shaped by the present evil age that is passing away. Our minds need to be filled with the lyrics of the Psalms far more than Tay-Tay and Ariana Grande. They, the, the Psalms are a much better guide than the, the, uh, the Psalms rather than the songs that we listen to today. The way that we think about and navigate romance and even what we expect of romance need to be shaped by the scriptures rather than Hollywood. There's some deprogramming and deconstructing that needs to happen in this room when it comes to the topic of singleness and dating and sex and marriage, because it's possible to serve on Sundays, it's possible to be engaged in our gospel communities, it's possible to give and to be an upstanding member here at Anchor Southwest and still be shaped by the very same forces that shape and motivate our culture. And, and, and uh, mo most of my work here is, is to get us to understand that, to get us to understand that we're disciples of somebody, right? You don't decide to be shaped 
You, you have some agency in who shapes you, but we're all shaped by something or someone. And when that happens, when we realize that we are actually being discipled by our culture in how to think about singleness and dating and sex and cohabitation and a whole host of other things, we realize that we believe the very same things of those people who don't follow Jesus. How could this be? This is the very same issue that Paul was confronting when he wrote his letter to the Corinthians church, churches. Folks were becoming Christians. They were pledging their allegiance to Jesus, and yet they were living with the value structures and practices of their old way of life. Cass and I have married now for 17 years almost. Lord bless her soul. Uh, you know, you've heard it said before, pray for your pastor. That's fine. You should. But pray twice for your pastor's wife, right? Because she has to put up with me. Imagine that if after saying I do at the altar 17 years ago, I just go away and live in my own apartment and have my own bank account, it just wouldn't make any sense. It, 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 I, I'm, I'm professing something, but I'm doing something completely different. In the same way, we can become Christians and continue to live, have values, and make decisions like those who may not profess faith. It just doesn't make any sense sense. We cannot have Jesus as our personal existential savior and not have him as our king. It doesn't exist. And so we need the scriptures to show us that Jesus is not only king, but he is good and his way is better. This is not a do better, try harder. This is seeing that Jesus's path is better. It is life giving rather than life taking. And so let me begin the sermon. The question stands, what of singleness? What do we do with it? How should we think about it? How should we live as single disciples of Jesus? And I think there are two shifts that we need to make in order to view singleness the way that the scriptures do. First, we need to move from seeing singleness as a curse to seeing it as a gift. And we need to make the move from seeing singleness as a season of waiting to seeing it as an opportunity to embody a sacrament. And I'll explain what that means. Because you hear, you hear me say, it's a gift. And you're like, Pastor, don't, don't, you tell me, don't you tell me singleness is a gift. I've heard that before. I, I know how many bad sermons you may have listened to. This may add to the repertoire of that. But, but I know how many bad sermons we may have listened to, particularly in youth group, about singleness, right? Just wait. Right? Just be content, and then the Lord will deliver your husband. Right? We, we've heard that so many times. I know how badly hurt we have been when we've been spoken to about singleness. How you just need to be grateful for the season that you're in. And, and in part, I want to say this. I'm not apologizing for the scriptures. We do need to be grateful for every season, for this is the will of the Lord for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. Everyone say all. all. Everyone say all. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue gratefulness and thankfulness in all circumstances. What I'm saying is that I understand how that can be used to hurt you in a single season that you may be in. If you've ever asked God to reveal his will for your life, this is it. Give thanks. Now, this is not only it. But, but, but we don't have to be confused about what God wants for us next. We can be sure that he's calling us to be thankful in every season, to give thanks in all circumstances regardless. But still, this idea that singleness is a gift doesn't feel like it applies to me. 
is what you're saying, right? So it's what some of you at least are saying. Now, I understand that it, it may be a gift for other people, but for me, I experience it as a curse. So pastor, again, please don't tell me that if you're 12 years old and you receive socks for Christmas, that that's a real gift, because it isn't. That, that's what some of us may be feeling. And so I'm not going to tell you that it's a gift, but I will allow Paul to speak on it when he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is what we need to get, that for Paul, for Paul to level the ground and call singleness a gift in this world is wild. It, it, it is extraordinary. It is scandalous for him to say this. For some of us in this room, we may be tracking with Paul. You're experiencing your singleness as a gift. And I'd like to note that some of us in this room have been surprised by singleness. Maybe through the, the passing of a loved one or a divorce that we didn't see coming. I'm not saying that those things are gifts. I'm not saying that if you've been plunged into singleness after being married or after being in a serious relationship, I'm not saying that the things that caused your singleness are gifts. What we are saying and what Paul is saying, because divorce and death are not gifts, what Paul is saying, strictly the state of singleness, which he says everyone, he wishes everyone was in, is a gift. It's charisma. It's the very same word. This word gift is the word charisma, that it's used all throughout 1 Corinthians and the New Testament to talk about things like prophecy and administration and speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues and, and healing. And we don't experience our singleness as a gift, I think, because we've misunderstood the idea of what a gift is. We, we, we for, we've forgotten what Paul means when he says gift. A gift for Paul is not something that you just receive to, uh, to enjoy, right? A gift, rather, is something given to you, uh, a state or an ability to you by the Spirit so that you would be able to edify and build up and encourage the people of God for the sake of the world. Do you get that? Do you get the, the difference here? Did you get the shift that needs to happen for us when we hear the word gift? A gift in our minds is something given for us, to us, for us, for our own pleasure and for our own enjoyment. And so when our frame of thinking is that gift equals pleasure and enjoyment for me, then we will see singleness in and of itself as a curse. But how do you move? How do we move from experiencing singleness as a curse to a gift. For that to happen, we need to deconstruct and rebuild. You can't build a house on the roof of another one that's going to last. We, we need to actually demolish the house and set solid foundations to build on. One of the primary reasons why we struggle with our singleness, if that's the state that we find ourselves in today, is because we've been so discipled by our culture that it's not even funny. If our life is about finding the one, if that's See, the thing is that we, we, we say things with our mouths, but our decisions tell the story. If our life is about finding the one, either the pursuit or being pursued, if, if, if we pine more than anything else to hear someone else say, like Jerry Maguire, you complete me. Like if, if that is your reason for existence, if that, or, or you had me at hello, or what we want, right? We want to take that job across the country. 
right? Because we've been in this non-committal or, 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 or a sort of semi-committal relationship for far too long. And then all we want is for our partner to chase that yellow cab all through the city. They're probably going to get stuck on the Williamsburg Bridge traffic, right? And you finally find the cab and you stop the cab driver, you pay the fare, you just throw however money you got in your pocket, and then they come out, and then you apologize, and you live happily ever after. Because that is how we've been discipled. And unless we get that, unless we have this kind of Pam and Jim kind of love, we don't want it. We, we think somehow we failed, our life is a failure. But when we live for these things, and when we live toward these things, when these things become the very focal point of our life, when it becomes the missing piece of life, when our reference point for how we live our lives becomes finding our significant other, then you're not able to experience your singleness as a gift, a gift that's been given to you, not necessarily for your pleasure and for your enjoyment, but for the building up of the church. We need to get over ourselves and outside of ourselves. You have a unique opportunity in a culture that says that life is all about romance. You have a unique opportunity in a culture that finds its identity in sexual and romantic love to show the world, listen, that your deepest and truest satisfaction is not found in sexual and romantic relationships. But oftentimes we bastardize our singleness and we use our freedom not to serve others, but to serve ourselves. But the goal of your singleness isn't to serve yourself, but to vote, to devote yourself to the Lord. This is what Paul says. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please God. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and what? And to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is saying that your singleness should serve good order and it should secure your undivided devotion to the Lord, not to yourself. Your singleness is not your own, for you are bought with a price. So honor God with the gift that he has given you in this season. Please do not waste it. Paul is keeping it 100 here. He's saying, listen, it's not a sin to get married at all. In fact, uh, he, he said that if you feel like you can't keep yourself under control, to go ahead and, and do that. But Paul wishes that everyone could remain single because by doing so, your loyalties aren't divided or distracted. And so how do we move from seeing and experiencing our singleness as a curse to seeing and experiencing it as a gift. First, we need to dismantle the idea that we are somehow incomplete without someone else. That, that needs to die. The, the idea that you are incomplete if you are single and are unmarried needs to die. We need to decipher and deconstruct the ways that our culture has maldeformed us into believing that our truest and our deepest joy will be found in the arms of another. Hollywood has done a phenomenal job. Phenomenal. Unbelievable how great they are at disciple making. Discipling us, discipling this generation to believe that our truest love is going to be found on the horizontal plane. 
But then we need to realize that singleness, in fact, is a gift given to us by the Spirit, not to serve ourselves, but to serve the church. And so, how should we think about and live as single disciples of Jesus? We must move from seeing it uh, and experiencing it as a curse, rather uh, seeing it as a gift, a gift given to us to the, to, for the edification, for the building up of the church. For the second shift we need to make, if we're going to honor God, with our singleness, is that we need to stop thinking about singleness as a period of waiting. You're not waiting. Singleness isn't isn't a waiting room, right? Waiting rooms are horrible, and singleness is not a waiting room, although the church and the culture will make us believe, will help us to think that we are. Regardless, rather, singleness is a sacrament, Singleness is a sacrament. Now, I want to say this, that the Catholic Church, of which you've noticed we're not a part of, uh, uh, holds that there are seven sacraments uh, that are rec- they're recognized by the church. Us Protestants, we've reduced that to two, okay? We, we, we say that the baptism is a sacrament and the Lord's table, uh, uh, communion is a sacrament. I want to delineate between two things, a small S sacrament and a big S sacrament. I'm not adding any big S sacraments to our church. I I do want to recognize, though, that uh, singleness is a sacrament. Now, a sacrament is this. A sacrament is a sign that points to something else. And so, you know the street sign on the corner? That's a sacrament. The sign itself is not the street, but it is indicating what the street is, where it is. And so, a sacrament is simply a sign pointing to a deeper reality. And so baptism, when you're submerged into water, it's a sign of you being buried with Christ in his death and being raised to life with him. If we're going to have a biblical view of singleness, we need to begin to see it not as a season of waiting, but as a sacrament of the kingdom of God. Picture this. Jesus is in the temple and the religious leaders are giving him grief as usual. They stay trying to trap him in his own words. They keep trying to lob at him these hypothetical situations so that he would slip up, so that they would catch him lacking, right? But Jesus doesn't lack. He doesn't slip. And on this occasion, the Sadducees are like, bet, we've got him with this one. And this is what they say. The same day, this is from Matthew 22, the same day, Sadducees came to him, to Jesus, who say, uh, uh, who say that there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees did not believe that there would be a resurrection at the end of the age. And they asked him a question. They said this, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left to his wife, she married his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? Gotcha, Jesus. Right? If you believe in the resurrection, gotcha. Right? Because who, whose wife is she going to be? Which brother? Which of the seven? But Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are, but are like the angels in heaven. Oh, you thought you got Jesus. You thought that you'd catch him slipping. And this is astonishing. Straight up, there, there, there will be no marriage in the age of resurrection, in the age to come. Meaning, meaning, let me just spell this out. Meaning that in the new heavens and in the new earth, 
where, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are catapulting to. All you wedding photographers, out of business. No weddings. So rake it up now. Marriage is its own small s sacrament, right? We'll, we'll talk about that next week. But the church is overdue in realizing that so is singleness. Singleness is not a period of waiting. It's an opportunity to lean into and to live out of the reality that your singleness is a picture of what heaven will look like. It's an opportunity to bear witness to the kingdom of God now. And this makes your singleness much more about Jesus and what he wants to show through your life rather than what you want. Because when our fallen desires and our broken visions, when our cultural scripts lead the way, we get ourselves in a whole host of trouble. And we see this all the time. We see this with with Abraham and Sarai. You remember the promise that God gave Abraham? Well, what did he say? He said, go outside, look up into the sky, no light pollution. So you can imagine the vista that he saw. Count all the stars. That's how many kids you're going to have. Go to the beach. Count all the grains of sand. That's how many kids you're going to have. That's the promise that he gave Abraham. And at 100 years old, you could understand. His wife was 90. He was 100. You could understand why they would try to find another route to fulfill God's promises for them. We too are given a promise, a promise that God will satisfy all of our needs. Hear this. God promises to satisfy all of our needs. He knows us and he cares for us. You really need to listen to this. And God promises to be our satisfaction. And we look to others to receive what only God can give, just like Abraham and Sarai. Sarai was given a promise that her 90-year-old body would produce life. Abram was given a promise that his 100-year-old body would produce fruit. But geriatric pregnancies, right? high risk. They weren't willing to hold God to his promises. They weren't willing to hold on until God delivered on his promise. And so what does Sarai do? He gives Abraham, or rather he gives Hagar, her maidservant, to Abraham, and she bears the child Ishmael. And there's this function upon this function upon this function that can only be captured truly in a Netflix special. I mean, drama upon drama upon drama. And we get ourselves into all sorts of bad relationships and situations because we don't believe that God is going to come through. Period. And if he does, we believe the lie that it's going to be a day late and a dollar short. And so as Christians, we enter into romantic relationships with people who don't share our faith. Paul tells us that we shouldn't be what's called unequally yoked, meaning that we shouldn't throw our lot in with someone who just doesn't have the same values that we do. This person could be the sweetest person in the world, but to throw your lot in with someone who at their deepest root does not share your convictions and your love for Jesus, who does not share your worldview, does not share your your deep desire to be a disciple of Jesus, is to say that Jesus is peripheral. And there's one thing that Jesus cannot be in your life, and that's peripheral. Listen, when we begin to have faith in Jesus, not just for our salvation, But for our joy, we will begin to see and experience the word of God as life. We will begin to see and experience the instructions of God as sweet and not as debilitating. 
Not because by obeying them we can gain some kind of salvation, but by obeying them we actually receive joy and express our love for him. You know, Christianity is the only religion that was founded by a single man. Period. And this single man remained a virgin all his life. We don't like to think about the sexuality of our God, Jesus. But Jesus remained a single virgin for the rest of his life. Don't believe Dan Brown. He didn't move to France and marry Mary. Jesus died a 33-year-old single virgin man. Let me tell you this. He was the most satisfied person who's ever lived. But because we swallow the lie that our identity is primarily found in our sexuality today, to, do, to, to be fully human is to have to engage in intercourse or express our sexuality because we believe that anything short of expressing our romantic sexuality is just old-fashioned, run-of-the-mill repression at best and psychologically damaging and cruel at worst. This is a hard saying to accept. And so, as we close, let me just remind you that your singleness is not a curse but it is a gift to steward to the glory of God and for the sake of the good of the world. And your singleness is not a period of waiting. It, it, it is a sacrament. It is a picture of what the world will look to come. And that's all good and true. But knowing these, knowing these things alone will, will not be enough for us to live a life worthy of the gospel as a single person. Let me invite the band up as I close up. And I just want to state my heart as clearly as possible here, that I, like Paul, am after your joy. I am after your happiness. Not after it like I want to capture it and take it away. Now you, you can read it that way. You can hear it that way. After it like I want to cultivate it. I am after the glory of God to shine through your life, your particular life. I'm after your life being a sign and a witness and a testimony to the goodness of God. I am after you understanding that your singleness is not a season of waiting, that you need to learn how to be content and then God will deliver. Rather, it's a sacrament to the kingdom of God now. And if we're going to walk faithfully with Jesus, we need to see and we need to experience his faithfulness toward us. All I want for you, all I want for this church is for us to not look to marriage and romance for the things that ultimately we can only receive from God. All I want for you and all I want for this church is for us to finally realize that Jesus is the one who satisfies our deepest longings. Ultimately, the only way that we're going to walk and live with integrity as single people who follow Jesus is to grow in our love and our awe of Jesus. I could have saved you like 40 minutes because that's it. If we're going to walk with integrity, if we're going to walk as people who follow the Messiah, what we truly need is to grow in our love and our awe for Jesus, the one who gave himself for us. You have to see him and his love for you as he hung on the cross for you to bear your sin and pay your penalty. This isn't about doing better or trying harder. This is about seeing the one who loved us to the end. I see a church that can begin to see singleness as a gift and as a sacrament. I see a church that puts to death the idea that romantic love is a place where we find our ultimate satisfaction. I see a church that no longer makes singles feel like second class or peripheral to the life of 
the church, a church that is so enamored by Jesus Christ and his unending love that they are willing to pursue their faithfulness in their singleness. I see a church that was bled for, a church that was died for, a church that was sacrificed for, a church that's going to sing now to the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. I'm going to pray in a moment. But if you'd like to respond, even for the first time, or if you'd like prayer, there's going to be folks here to my left and to my right to pray for you. There's going to be communion, if you love Jesus, as a response to take the bread and the cup to remember what he's done for us, to remember that his body was broken for us, his blood shed for us. And then we will sing to the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Jesus, that you have not called us to something that you yourself did not do. And so I pray for this church, Lord, that we would dismantle the idols that we hold dear, that we would be able, we would be given the grace to live into what you are calling us to. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move in this room, that you would draw near, that you would bring us, Lord, to repentance and faith, even for the first time today. And I pray that as we sing, may our words rise up to you as a sweet-smelling fragrance. Would you accept our worship, Jesus? May you cleanse our worship on the way up. And may we sing with everything we have. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And the church said, amen.